welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have a couple of things for you. First, we have a question from Harry Hong, who is, in fact, a Patreon backer. Thank you, Harry. Next, I have a couple questions from a student at Mount Sinai Medical School who posed this to me during the Ash holiday, and I'll answer that on this week's podcast. And finally, we have joined via Skype Bishal Gewali, who is going to talk to us about his paper out today in the JNCCN, looking at whether or not targeted drugs maintain their response rate and their duration of response between phase two and phase three testing. You won't want to miss this discussion, so stay tuned. But first, a bit of a professional update. I, uh let people know on Twitter, and I guess I will let you know here on the podcast, that this May I will be moving Plenary Session HQ from Oregon to San Francisco. I'll be an associate professor of medicine in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF. I will be continuing my oncology clinical practice and uh, hope to see patients with a diverse range of classical, hematologic, and malignant problems there at San Francisco. I look forward to continuing this podcast. I've spent a lot of time in San Francisco over the years. I know I'm going to enjoy it, uh, but I will also miss uh, one of my favorite cities in the world, Portland, Oregon, and uh, miss many, many of my colleagues here at uh, the Oregon Health and Science University. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First, a mea culpa. Well, Harry Hong has written back to the show to thank us for addressing his questions on Kaplan-Meier curves. He also reminded us that he is in fact a Patreon backer, and I was wrong about that. Harry has been a plenard for many, many months now, and Harry, we want to thank you for your support here at the podcast. Um, Harry sent me Kaplan-Meier curves from a randomized control trial by Ed Guerin and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine that had high rates of censoring in the overall survival curve, and it appeared to have a lower rate of censoring in the PFS curve. Well, Harry, the answer to your question, which listeners will not be able to appreciate because they're not going to be able to look at the curves, uh, but the answer is basically the reason why there's more people censored in the OS curve is they're censored because of lack of follow-up in the OS curve, and they're not censored in the PFS curve because so many people at that same time point have already experienced the event of interest, and thus they're excluded from the denominator, um, not by virtue of being censored, but by virtue of having experienced the event of interest. So that's the answer to that question. But your point is well taken in your email. That's a very early look at a survival curve, and I'd like to see follow-up data to that. So for that unique answer that only Harry is going to fully appreciate, uh, we will turn to questions that all of us here on Plenary Session can learn from. These are some questions written to me 
by a student at Mount Sinai Medical School who came across these questions at ASH. Here are the questions. One, should industry scientists be reviewers for academic peer-reviewed literature? Question mark. That was the core question, but the more I thought about that, I thought it was really kind of a single question that was under an umbrella of questions, which include, should reviewers disclose financial conflicts of interest? And perhaps broadly, what are the obligations and responsibilities of reviewers, and what should the benefits of reviewing be? And that is what I will talk to you today on Plenary Session. So um, I guess what I would say is that before we pick on folks who happen to work for the industry, uh, let's talk about more broadly the reviewing process. Of course, we live at a time where um, people are quick to extol the fact that the article was quote-unquote peer-reviewed. And peer review means to the academic the same thing that three cherries mean to the gambler. It means you're a winner on the slots. And if you get three people to like your paper, you're a winner and you get your paper published. And that's why the rabbit will always run faster than the fox because the rabbit runs for his life and the fox merely runs for a meal. The person submitting the flawed, fragmented, inconclusive, industry-hype spin article uh, can keep submitting it until they get the three cherries. They can keep pulling at the lever. Um, and the person who points out the caveats and limitations, um, they may only be the reviewer on one, two, three submissions, but they're unlikely to be the reviewer for all of them. So that's really why any flawed paper, no matter how bad, could eventually be published somewhere if the person pushing in the submission button, pulling the slot machine, was in fact persistent. But that said, reviewers can be helpful. I recently experienced a reviewer that actually told me things I hadn't thought of and made constructive suggestions that were feasible with the resources we had, and we were able to do it and make a better paper. And that should almost be a case report for a journal because it's so infrequent that that occurs. But um, I think we can all agree that, um, you know, uh, maybe it's theoretically possible, who knows, that having reviewers is better than not having any reviewers at all because maybe they do exclude some of the most crazy propositions. That said, many crazy things have been able to trickle through. For instance, the classic paper by Andrew Wakefield and colleagues, which uh, if you even read the original paper, you would wonder why this is in a journal at all. It is a fragment of anecdote that has nothing to do with science, and yet it appeared in The Lancet. And uh, of course, it was later retracted, and there was all these concerns about fraud and undisclosed financial conflict of interest, but that was really secondary. If you read the original paper, you will see that it is not meritorious in any way. It is a flawed, crazy paper that uh, doesn't prove anything. It just rather compiles a series of anecdotes with no denominator, Um, and uh, so it should really have never been published in the first place. Um, But, you know, if you criticize papers for compiling anecdotes with no denominator, that would go a long way. There'd be a lot of papers that would be thrown in the junk bin. So, to this question, should reviewers disclose financial conflict of interest? So, I think, um, you know, we can debate to what value the review process serves. We can also ask the question whether or not we might be best served by having preprints and an open public peer review process instead uh, with some transparency um, and a process where maybe reviewers have to disclose their name too. So, it's a double open process like the BMJ does. Uh, perhaps that will lead to more civility. Um, we can also debate the virtues of having a double blind process, although so often authors of papers are betrayed by the citation patterns. Um, 
But I think it is an important question to ask whether or not reviewers should disclose financial conflicts. And I, I think that authors clearly do disclose them. They're supposed to disclose them. Some of them actually remember to disclose them. Um, but I do think reviewers ought to disclose them as well. Um, I'm perhaps in part motivated by my own personal experience where we've submitted some papers that are critical of specific products. And we've had responses where, um, you know, reviewers almost allude to the fact that, well, the company has told them some things in secret that would sort of discount that this this concern. And and that troubles me. That means they have a very cozy relationship with that company. One wonders whether or not they have a financial incentive to uh, defend that company. Um, so I do think reviewers should disclose financial conflicts. Their disclosure process should be the same as author's disclosure con- process. Um, and 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 by that metric, then I don't think that the people who work for the industry should be um, – you know, single-handedly excluded any more than people who consult for companies should be single-handedly excluded, but uh, editors should at least be aware of those relationships and assess them for the risk of bias. And at the end of the day, editors, um, they have to have uh, really a lot more courage and really make the final stand. Reviewers is just uh, consultants. The the editor is the person who makes the clinical decision. It's just like being on the wards. Um, just because your consultant says to do X doesn't mean you have to do X. Um, and you don't always have to have three consultants who agree. Sometimes you have to do what one out of three consultants says if that's the right thing and if that's what you believe. And sometimes you can bring them to the table and try to persuade your consultants. And I know there are, in fact, some journals that have a collaborative discussion process, such as eLife, um, which actually makes um, the final recommendations to the author more parsimonious. Um, Okay, but we're beating up on reviewers a lot, like they should be disclosing conflict. They should be, um, you know, held to the standard of improving the manuscript constructively, or if it has fatal flaws, to say those clearly and identify that. Um, But what do they get for that? And I think the answer is they get nearly nothing in this modern system, although the um, multinational corporation that runs the journal publishing industry is making perhaps a 40% profit on revenue, uh, exceeding even the most lucrative spaces in the biopharmaceutical industry. The reviewers get nothing for their time. They're really donating that for free. And it's not the time of some random person. It's the time of somebody who is exquisitely qualified and well-trained. So it is very valuable time. Um, I think the answer is reviewers have to be paid. I mean, there is plenty of money in the system uh, to pay reviewers a fair rate for what it would take to get somebody to review an article. Um, Some journals do pay. Uh, The Lancet journals do pay if you review in a timely fashion. Um, Other journals um, may offer small benefits like a discount in author fees for subsequent publication. Um, But I think reviewers should pay. I recently saw on Twitter some... um, strongly opinionated uh, uh, researcher who said that the junior faculty should say yes to every review and do them promptly. I thought that was absurd because um, you could be doing reviews every day of the week and you would have nothing else to do and you'd never accomplish anything and you're doing all that labor for free. Um, Somebody more correctly pointed out you shouldn't review for a journal you never want to publish in. And I think that's actually, you know, kind of fair, although noted you won't always know all the journals you might want to publish in someday, but there are some journals you know that you may never aspire to publish in, and you can't imagine spending so much of your time reviewing for that. Um, but I think the, the risk-benefit calculus has to shift. Reviewers should be able to get some benefit from that. Um, one of the virtues of an open, totally open post-publication peer review system would be you know, you people will get to read your review. And if it's a really good review, you're going to get that star saying, you know, 42 people like this review, the same way they do it on Amazon products. Um, Amazon, of course, also incentivizes reviewers uh, through their Vine network, getting gifts and other sort of trinkets to get them to review. Um, and uh, similarly, one might think that there needs to be some uh, incentives in the academic uh, system. 
So answers to these questions broadly, do I believe that um, the financial conflicts of interests of reviewers should be taken into account in their assessment of the manuscript? Absolutely. Do I believe that employees of the industry, um, that that their financial conflict should be taken into account? Absolutely. Uh, anecdotally, although I don't have evidence to prove this, I would actually suspect that some of the most recalcitrant, vehement defenders of the industry are not, in fact, those who work for those companies, but rather those who receive modest to outsized consulting payments, that they, in fact, have the most uh, allegiance bias uh, to the companies than even the employees of that company. Um, I think that this kind of reveals itself when you talk to people very privately. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd love to see that tested. Um, so I don't think that just because they work for the industry, they should be uh, excluded. I do think that this concern is so great that it should be broadly considered. I think editors have to make real stands and fi make final decisions and own those decisions, uh, something that many editors uh, are, are, are reluctant to do. Um, and I do think that reviewers should have some benefit to them. They should be paid, especially if it's going to be privately for um, the the journal. Um, or they should get some public acclaim if they write a really good review, hard-hitting review. Um those are my main thoughts on this topic. I think the entire peer review process is a process ripe for scientific study itself. Um, is it the case that this process uh, leads to the best ratio of truthful science, the maximize truthful science, minimize spurious science, uh, maximize speed of dissemination, um, and minimize administrative burden? I think the answer is we don't know. Um, we have no other system. It is so easy to say this system is the best system because it's the only one we know. Um, but one wonders what alternative systems might look like, a system where all articles appear instantly as preprints, where people uh, review, um, perhaps monetarily incentivized, but perhaps by solely virtue of their interest in the topic. Perhaps reviewers are rewarded by um, reviews that generate the most um, uh, consent from the body scientific uh, if uh, many, many professors or academics in your field like your review and in, in a fully open process, perhaps you get some badge for that. Um, you can be like the most liked reviewer, the, the most savvy and, 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 and clever reviewer, just like uh, we all know those people when it comes to you know, book reviews. Um, might that process be better, a better balance of weeding out bad science, um, highlighting good science? Um, or is it also prone to the same sort of elements of clubbiness and groupthink and all these kinds of things? I think these are all really legitimate open questions, but I certainly don't think that the existing process is sacrosanct or shouldn't be tested. I certainly um, don't want to um, unduly penalize any particular players in the system, uh, but I do think that financial conflicts of interest are a crippling problem in this field, and of course everyone knows who knows me knows I think that. Uh, and and I don't think that for no reason. I think that because I read 200 papers on the topic and that the uh, aggregate of those papers is quite persuasive. And two chapters of the book, Malignant. Malignant. How bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. Coming April 2020. Uh, I do think two chapters of Malignant will hit this topic so hard that there is no one who could be left standing who could defend uh, the current status quo. Well, on that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview now with Dr. Bishal Gaywali from Queen's University. He's going to talk about his new paper out today in the JNCCN. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Bishal Gaywali via Skype. 
Bashar should need no introduction on this podcast. He's been a frequent guest and commentator, and we've talked about many of his fine papers on this podcast. Bashar is here for a new segment called Breaking. This is the segment where we talk about papers that have just been published. Bashar, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you, Vinay. It's a pleasure. And actually, this is my only second time being on the podcast. Only second time, but your name has been mentioned many times. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And now you're based in Kingston, Ontario. Yes. At Queen's University. Yes, that's true. And how do you like it there? Uh, it's an amazing place. Uh, it's uh, a very nice place to work, uh, both clinically and uh, research-wise, because the group that we have here in oncology, it's really a group of uh, very thoughtful people, uh, very patient-centric people, and uh, the research that this team produces uh, is something that I always aspire to be a part of. It sounds wonderful. Uh, and I look forward to uh, seeing you all very soon in September. Uh, yes, so we eagerly look forward to welcoming you. Or I guess by the time this podcast is out, you will already have been here. Yeah, actually, that's <laughs> I didn't realize. Yeah, this podcast is coming the moment this paper breaks. So, Bishal, tell us, let's get right into it. Tell us about the paper. What is the title of this paper? Uh, the title of the paper is Response Rates and Durations of Response for Biomarker-Based Cancer Drugs in Non-Randomized versus Randomized Trials. Ah, that's a great title. And it is now available uh, on the JNCCN website and should be in print very shortly. So this paper has just come out. And this is a paper that you've been working on for a while now um, that, you have, that you've gotten out. And it looks at something super interesting um, and actually picks up a bit of oncology history. So maybe I'd ask you to start by telling us a little bit about the 2005 Zia paper that uh, was maybe the, in part the inspiration of this. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, so, uh, as you know, the 2005 JCOGR paper looked at uh, response rates of chemotherapy drugs in uh, phase two versus phase three trials. And the conclusion was, uh, in that paper, for most of the chemotherapy drugs, the response rates, they, uh, it falls in phase three trials when you compare that with phase two trials. Um, so, a cancer drug that has a response rate of, say, 40% in phase two, it will look very impressive. But then when you do a randomized trial, you see that the response rate has fallen to 20% and it's not as impressive as we suppose uh, it to be. And I think, uh, yeah, one of the things that makes it so interesting is they look at the same chemotherapy in the same cancer and they look mm -hmm. at response rate, which has nothing to do with the other arm of the study. It's just yeah. how does this drug work for a group of people? And why should that be different if they're phase two or phase three? It shouldn't be, theoretically. It should be the same response rate. But what they find is, I think, a 12.5 percentage point reduction on average, which is very provocative and suggests that we might be overcalling response in phase two trials or selecting patients in a way for which they're more prone to response. Yeah, totally, totally. And, uh, you know, the background for this study is uh, this, actually we started this study while I was back in Portal at Harvard mm. and uh, we were trying to do uh, research on biomarker based cancer drugs and precision oncology and at that time when I was doing the literature review I came across a number of studies uh, about biomarker based cancer drugs and those studies uh, were claiming in a way that we don't need randomized trials of, for precision oncology drugs because the response rates are so impressive 
in phase two trials, in non-randomized trials. Mm. So these super impressive response rates in non-randomized trials meant uh, in their language that doing a phase three RCT would be unethical mm-hmm. because you are seeing such good response rates. Uh, so, and then I remember this 2005 JCO paper and I remember that, yes, for cytotoxic drugs, we know that the response rates fall uh, when you do a randomized trials, but what about this new precision oncology drugs? Uh, is it uh, is the case the same? Uh, maybe they are right, maybe for precision oncology drugs, because they are acting on a target, maybe the response rate holds, mm-hmm. who knows? So I wanted to check that. And so I went to uh, the list of the approved precision oncology drugs. Uh, and, I, and when I went through that, I actually found that uh, the reason why FDA gives approval to these drugs is not just response rate, but also duration of response. Right. So in all the approvals, they mention that there is a sustained duration of response. Right. So I found that that's a very key point there. Uh, so if you have a 20%, uh, if you have a 50% response rate, but that lasts only less than a month, then that doesn't make much sense. So they are impressed with both response rate and duration of response for these precision oncology drugs. So I wanted to check whether this response rate and duration of response for precision oncology drugs, uh, will they uh, be maintained when you do a randomized trial? Or is it like the case with the other cytotoxic drugs and they fall in randomized trial? Uh, so that was the key question that drove this research. It's a great question, and I think you, you framed it so well, which is that if you're really saying this drug is such so remarkable that you are unable to test it, you know, it's so wonderful that it cannot be tested in a randomized study, you'd really expect that that response rate would be maintained, and the duration of response has to also be maintained for that kind of claim to be true. Yeah. And then I guess I just have to add, because I... Uh, because I think that it's important to know, which is that, you know, Emerson Chen and I looked at all the drugs approved based on response rate, and the response rate was 40%. 41% was the mean, median response rate in that JAMA internal medicine paper, you know, th- that was paired with your paper. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that also points out that actually one thing is they're not as high as people think they are. I mean, 41% is not 88%, which is what I think we talk a lot about. Um, yeah. But but you're asking a different question, which is very important, which is what happens to these things in random when you randomize? How much of yeah. this is inflated benefit? How much is real? Okay, so exactly. tell us, um, how did you include the studies in your data set? Yeah, so I think that that's one one crucial point that people need to remember when interpreting our, our results. Because in this study, we have included only the FDA-approved drugs. So there there may be hundreds and thousands of non-approved biomarker-based drugs that failed, and so they have not been a part of our study. So necessarily, our results are very, very conservative because we are selecting only the only the successful ones. And, that, you're, that yeah. Yeah. and you're picking drugs for which somebody has done the randomized study because yeah. some of these drugs, they may never have looked or they may not want to publicize the result or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. And how many pairs did you find? Uh, yeah, so we uh, we went through the uh, FDA's table of pharmacogenomic biomarkers in drug labeling, and uh, we picked uh, the cancer drugs uh, that were approved on the basis of uh, some changes in biomarker-based uh, endpoints. Uh, we included until December 27, uh, 2017, sorry, because we started this uh, this uh, study in somewhere March or April of 2018, and that was the latest uh, table that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, ultimately, we found 21 
drug indication pairs. 21 pairs. And yeah. and then okay, so I think that's a that's a nice set that we can start to kind of probe. Um and and so what did you find about the two the two endpoints you you cared most about? Uh yeah, the interesting thing is uh First of all, let's talk about some approvals. Yes. The thing that uh, I found interesting while gathering this data was that recently, uh, like usually FDA gives accelerated approval for these drugs that were approved on the basis of uh, response rate or duration of response, these surrogate endpoints. But I found that in uh, a couple of cases, the FDA has given full approval for these drugs based on phase two response data alone. Uh, so that was uh, a little surprising for me. Like we have the pathway called accelerated approval for this particular purpose to to uh, approve the drugs early based on data like response rates or PFS, but then you will test the drug later uh, in a phase three trial properly. And that, even though we have this pathway, yeah. why did not FDA use this pathway, and why did they decide to give full approval at the outset based on response alone? Yeah, and I think I think it's such a great topic. You know that that's something that you know has has caught my attention. That uh, uh, a student at Mayo Clinic, Emma Delory, and I wrote that paper about the use of regular approval for these response rate drugs. Um, it is sort of unprecedented and often made when they have poor correlation with survival. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that was in Annals of Oncology. I think I uh, I remember reading it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you you say you you're finding the same thing, and it's concerning to you as well. Yeah, totally because. Accelerated approval pathway is there for a purpose. Right. If we give full approval straight away, then why have that pathway? Yes, I agree with you 100%. I think that um, it raises several concerns. One, the are, are is response rate validated in these settings? Often the answer is no. Two, if you don't have a post-marketing commitment, you never know what happens to the response rate in phase three. I mean, you may not have a randomized trial in some cases. Um, and three, uh, people who are paying for drugs and making coverage decisions, they don't know how to prioritize these drugs over other healthcare services because they don't know what the quality of life implications are and what the overall survival is. It's simply never known. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, the, the other, other interesting finding was uh, uh, after 21 uh, sample, we had uh, nine, that is less than half, were approved on the basis of phase three RCTs. Wow. Uh, 10, which is 48%, were based on phase two single arm trial. And okay. two were actually based on phase one trials. Really? Phase one? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the, these were the, the phase one trial. Actually, one of the regular approval was based on phase one trial. That is the Crizotinib in ROS1. I see. Wow. And uh, the other one was uh, the accelerated approval of Seritinib for ALK positive non sponsored lung cancer. That was based on phase one? Yeah. Huh, interesting. Okay. Um and 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 what else did you learn? Uh yeah, so the other interesting finding was that okay, so we had uh, data from both uh, non-randomized and randomized trial in 19 pairs. Uh-huh. Because some of them were never tested in randomized trial. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, especially the median duration of response data were uh, of poor quality in most cases. We had uh, data available for comparison only in 15 pairs. 
So what you're saying is that in some cases, people aren't even reporting the median duration of response? Yeah. That's astonishing. Yeah. That's just, uh, uh, and you know, it kind of, the other day, this is unrelated, the other day I was looking up some drug and I wanted to talk to the patient in my office about the response rate of this this regimen. Um, mm-hmm. And I looked in the paper and nowhere in the paper does it have the response rate. It just talks about the difference in OS and the difference in PFS. And finally, I was like getting frustrated, which is, this is basic information that should be reported. Wouldn't you agree? Exactly. Like, uh like people like you and me who do a lot of meta research yes. based on based on publications and clinical trials at GOB and those open uh, database, I think all of us agree that the quality of trial reporting is so poor and the quality of uh, recording the trial results is so poor. I get so frustrated. I have done a number of meta analysis. I have done I have done one meta analysis about. Uh, uh, adverse, adverse events, uh, serious and fatal adverse events in uh, patients receiving a certain cancer drug. And there are a number of trials that don't report how many patients died because of the drug. Oh, my. And and like right now, when I'm doing this uh, analysis about response rates and duration of response and a number of analysis about PFS and OS, some of them just don't report it. Some of them report it but don't give the 95% confidence interval. They just give the median value and that's it. Some of them don't report the hazard ratio and they give only the p-value. And, you know, like the quality of reporting is so poor and it becomes especially frustrating when you try, you know, like in a number of these papers, I did not find the required information in the publication. So I went to the clinical trust at GOV, hoping that it had more information. And in some cases they had. So I used data from the clinical trust at GOV website. Uh-huh. But then for some data that were presented in both website and publication, they don't match. I see. And then you start to get frustrated. You you have already extracted some data from the publications, and now when you look at clinical trials at GOB, they are not matching anymore. I see. That, so you don't know which data point to use. Yes. I think that's frustrating. And I think since we do meta-research, we see these things more often than people would wish to believe. And if yeah. you, and unless And unless you're reading papers very, very closely, you may not even notice these things. Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, so now tell us the two major findings. What happens to response rate and what happens to duration of response? So this is our figure one mm-hmm. in the publication. So as in figure 1A and 1B, uh, we plot response rates in RCT in the y-axis and response rate in the non-RCT uh, single-arm trials in the x-axis. Mm-hmm. And so we try to uh, uh, see whether these data points are scattering below the uh, line of equity, uh, above the line of equity. Yes. The Y equals CX line. So we see that uh, in both the cases, uh, there are more data points below the line of equity than there are above. In case of response rate, there does not seem to be such a drastic difference. Uh, to be precise, 63% of the data points, they fell below the line of unity for response rate, which means in 63% of the cases, the response rate in single arm trials were higher than the response rate in the randomized trials. I see. Uh, but in case of, uh, if you look at figure 1B, in case of duration of response, I think you see a clear picture there. Yes, a clear picture. Uh, yeah. In 87% of the cases, uh, the points fall below the line of unity. So that means the duration of response in particular, they seem to be exaggerated in single arm trials. And when you do a randomized trial, the duration of response seems to fall down. I think that is so clear. And and yeah. readers, 
who of the paper might see that there is one outlier that goes the other direction by a, a big, big amount. Uh, tell us a little bit about about that outlier and why it's an outlier. Uh, yeah, so this uh, scatter plots they reveal uh, an outlier on the top left. Uh, that's the case of pertuzumab in breast cancer. So um, obviously this was an outlier because. Uh, in the non-randomized, in the single arm trial, it was tested as a single agent in the second line breast cancer. And in uh, randomized trial, it was tested with trastuzumab plus docetaxel in the first line. So you would expect it to have a higher response uh, in uh, the randomized trial. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, this uh, this plot also helped us to discover that outlier. So we, we removed that outlier from our analysis of the forest plots. Uh, but And we also... Uh, found that actually in case of uh, response rate, scatter plot, you'll see one, one outlier there. As well. Yeah, what's that one? Uh, that is uh, Rukaparib. Ah. Uh, so, yeah, this, uh, in case of uh, Rukaparib, what had happened was uh, the non-randomized trial and the initial approval, it was based on the presence of uh, BRCA mutation. Yeah. But, uh, the randomized trial was conducted in all common population as a maintenance therapy. So we, we tried to take that out as well so that the forest plot would contain only the pairs that are more or less uniform for non-randomized and randomized uh, cohorts. I see. Wait, tell me again, why is that an outlier in Rukaparib? Uh, because in the non-randomized trial, it was tested only on, the, only on those patients who had BRCA mutation. I see. Yes. But in the randomized trial, it was tested in all commas, mm -hmm. and it was tested as a maintenance therapy. I see. I see. And so in the randomized trial, as a maintenance therapy, you why did you give it such a high response rate? Because you gave it 80% in the randomized study, but shouldn't it have in maintenance no response rate? Figure 1A, the upper left? Oh, no. The, the point that you're looking at is not the outlier that I'm talking about. Oh, okay, I see. Yep. Uh, the outlier in this case is the low, the bottom right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the the one that's very, very low. I see. Gotcha. So, yeah. What is that point in the upper left? That point in the upper left should be TDM one. Yeah, could be. Uh, let me see. It's like RCT eighty percent, right? Yeah. So all this has to be. No, that's that's the same thing. That's that's Pazeta. Oh, that's why we, uh, oh, I see. It's the same you saw point. One yeah. In, in, in response rate and one in duration of response. I see. Right. So okay, that makes sense. Outcome. Same concept. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So back to your point. So <laughs> you're saying, um, you're saying that you have clearly shown that even though these agents are molecularly targeted or biomarker driven, novel, um, you know, trendy, uh, innovative, uh, game changing therapies that the response rate, although it appears to be preserved, uh, the duration of response is not commensurately preserved. It appears to be shorter in randomized studies than in phase two studies, suggesting yeah. that the benefit of the drug in randomization is probably less than the benefit in phase two and probably raising the question of whether randomized trials are indicated for these kinds of drugs altogether. Exactly, exactly. And uh, this point is made more clear if you look at the further forest plot analysis that we did, mm -hmm. uh, the pooled uh, 
uh, analysis. Uh-huh. Excluding outliers. Yeah. Uh, so in this uh, pool analysis, what we did was we looked at what we call ratio of response rates. So this is uh, response rate in uh, non-RCT divided by response rate in RCT. Yes. So when we pulled that across these trials, we found that the pooled ratio of uh, response rates was 1.06, which was, uh, which showed that the response rate in non-randomized trial is higher than that in randomized trial, but it was not significant. So mm-hmm. let's uh, not highlight this uh, more. But if we look at the duration of response for this plot, we, which is, again, we looked at ratio of duration of responses, which is defined as the duration of response in non-randomized trial versus that in randomized trial, we find that the pooled duration of response is 1.17, which is significant. Yes. So that means the duration of response in non-randomized trials are, uh, on average, 17% higher than Than randomized studies. Randomized trials. I see. And I think that clearly proves that they are upwardly biased or generous or perhaps exaggerated or overly enthusiastic, non-randomized studies. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so um, this was of uh, this was of interest and importance to us because, uh, you know, lately, I think we have even seen a number of meta-analyses uh, comparing response rate of targeted drugs versus non-targeted drugs, but all in phase one trials. Yes. And then people are claiming, okay, now phase one trials have become therapeutic because uh, these targeted drugs have high response rate. But if we actually randomize and see, um, uh, and the benefit of randomization is we are, hopefully we are eliminating or suppressing the bias uh, that you have when you are doing non-randomized trials. Yes, when you're scoring it, yes. Yeah. Uh, we see that the duration of response uh, and uh, yeah it it, it it shrinks yes so that's a cl- uh, that's a clever point so in addition to the fact that these results suggest we probably could be doing more randomized trials we're not doing you're mm-hmm. also saying that people who want to convince others that phase 1 trials have become therapeutic are probably mm-hmm. also looking at the glass in a biased way. They're likely overestimating that benefit because they're not looking at the response rate of those same agents in subsequent randomized trials, which is probably closer to the true benefit the drug's providing. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. So those are at least two things that you're raising, yeah. And uh, that will also bring into question uh, the practice of providing full approval based on responses alone. Yes. Excellent. So then the third point is, why is the FDA granting full regulatory approval for a surrogate endpoint for which there is uncertainty and for which the duration of response is likely to be shorter in the real world and in randomized phase three trials? These are three excellent points. So overall, I think, is it fair to say that the work by Zia, which is now 15 years old, uh, (laughs) still has a lot of important lessons in the modern age? Although the response rate is preserved, the duration of response is 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 exaggerated uh, and and sort of the idea that Zia had many years ago is still true. Yeah, totally, totally. And uh, we try to use this uh, new uh, statistical technique of aggregating over the trials using the ratio of uh, response rates or the ratio of durations of response. Yeah, which was not there in the Zia uh, research. And uh, even using this technique, we see that. Uh, and and the the beauty of this technique is that we can actually test whether this exaggeration is significant or not. Yeah. So, yeah, we see that what Gia was uh, suggesting, it still holds true in the era of precision oncology as well. 
Well, well said, Bishal. Thank you for coming on the news segment, Breaking. And readers can find this paper in the JNCCN right now. Thank you so much, Bishal. Thank you very much, Binay. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.